Today is a commissioning Sunday, and uh, some of it is about commissioning those who serve faithfully to equip the body, the church here at New Community. The other larger perspective of why we do what we do today, um, if I could tell you a little bit uh, Uh, A story. So I've been pastoring this church about 13 years, and we started this church 10 years ago. Over the course of the church, as we grew a little bit older, a little bit older is average age of our first two, three years of our church was about 20, 21. And about year eight or nine, it became about 27, 28. And we're right around 29-ish right now. So pastoring this church, I've seen over and over again a major, what I think is an issue in the larger church, and that is this dichotomy in the sacred versus secular perspective towards all of life. The sacred versus the secular divide, I'll call it. Um, And just to let you know, um, the way that this has been manifested is countless, almost hundreds of conversations I have regularly with folks in that particular age group of 20, 30-somethings as they think about their future and their job. Um... And what I've seen throughout the course of this church is that particularly for those of us, and I include myself who grew up in the church, we've adopted this really erroneous, sometimes toxic, bad theology. And just to give you an idea, I grew up with it too. And and just to share a little bit about my own personal experience and how jacked up I was. So I started dating my wife when I was 25, 26. I had known at the time that I was going to be in full-time ministry. And so I was in seminary and pursuing Uh, vocational ministry in the church. My wife, of course, was planning and studying to be a doctor, a physician. I got to be a certain point where I realized that this is the woman I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, and so we started having some real conversations about commonalities, future goals, so on and so forth. And I hit a wall. And the wall that I hit was this, and it's almost embarrassing for me to share, but so don't judge me and just listen, okay? The, The wall that I hit was this. I grew up in the church with this mentality that I was to marry a woman whose entire life would revolve around me and supporting me in my ministry. Okay? That's what I grew up with. And so I believed with all my heart that that's who I needed to marry. The problem, of course, was that I married a very strong-willed, strong-headed woman who knew clearly that God had called her to be a doctor. So without boring you with the rest of the details, the climax happened on a conversation one night when we were sitting down. And I said, you know, Jenny, I really care about you, and I think there's a future for us, but you know, in order for this to work, I'm going to need you to maybe give up your career in medicine. I said it just like that with a straight face, okay? To which... To which my wife looked at me with those eyes and without blinking, she said this. She goes, I have a question for you. Are you willing to give up ministry for me? That's when I knew. Hot diggity dog, I found the one. She's it, man. No, that's not what I thought. I was like, this is over. And I walked out. And I agonized for days because in my heart of hearts, I believed that people who were pastors and missionaries were called and everyone else just had jobs. I believed that to the core of my being. Now, God's broken me over the years, and I've come to a bit of an enlightenment, if you will, because he can't even support that through the scriptures. The secular spiritual divide, the secular sacred divide in the church, to me has done tons of damage to how people perceive their current jobs or their current vocations. Because the reality is, every single one of us is called. Amen? Every single one of us. And the lot in life that God has called us in. Now, for many of us who've kind of grown up in the church, I'll tell you how this mentality has infected you as well. Because here's what happens when you and I lack a biblical ethic of vocation and work. Many in our culture, basically a perspective towards their life, their job is, your job is what you do for a living through which you make money so that you can do what you really want to do. Your job is something that you do for a living so that you can make money, so you can do what you really want to do. Nobody works for the sake of the thing that they do. Nobody works for the thing that they do. What do I mean? Work is just a byproduct of their real aim. 
Their real name, for many in our culture, is money or status. So not all doctors, but there are lots of doctors for whom patience is just something that happens along the way. Their real aim is making a certain kind of money so they can have a certain kind of status and live a certain way. Lawyers don't accept cases and briefs for the sake of justice. But it's so that they can earn a certain amount of money, have a certain standard of living. In this mentality, if you're sitting there going, I don't think I've bought into that. In this mentality, listen carefully. Where you work and how much you make is the utmost importance. Let me say that again. In that mentality, where you work. So the job that you have, what city you live in, and how much you make becomes the all-important thing. Here's the thing. The radical thing about Scripture is God turns it upside on its head, and God goes, I'm not concerned about where you work and how much you make. I'm most concerned about how you do your job in the place that I placed you now. I'm most concerned about how you do your job in the place that I placed you right now. For so many of us, this may be, you may not, our prayer desperately is, God, give me a new job, or God, show me what it is that I'm supposed to do after this. And God's prayer sometimes is, how about you pray, God, help me to do this job with all my heart as unto you today. And I'm going to leave career changes and job opportunities for tomorrow to you. Can I ask you a question? It's not just, hey, you know, I just, I think I'm, the the question in terms of whether you've been infected with Scripture's view, kingdom's view of work and vocation versus what our world says is, is the all-consuming thing for you right now, be honest, right now, where you work. So you're thinking about this city, that city, that lifestyle, and how much am I make? So you're passing up all kinds of jobs, thinking about leaving, or is your all-consuming passion, God, help me to do my job right now, as if I was working for you. And I'm going to leave what I do tomorrow and career opportunities to your perfect will. Hmm? Genesis is where we're going to be for the next two, three weeks. By the way, we're going to be parked in Genesis because we're on the sermon series about community. An amazing thing about Genesis 1 to 3 is it actually talks about those two things, community and work. Genesis is about how things began. That means we get insights into the very foundational questions of why, what for, the questions that you and I ask every single day. So this week, today, Commissioning Sunday, I'm going to talk a little bit about work and rest And the next two weeks, we're going to talk about community. Genesis 2, open your Bibles with me. I'm going to start reading from verse 1, and I skip a little bit here and there. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Jump down to verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Verse 8. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And all the way down to 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This is for like three people here, but this is important. When God created and God did everything the way he wanted, in paradise, before sin ever entered the world and twisted things, there was what? There was work. Honest, how many of us grew up hearing somewhere, somewhere along the line, that work was somehow the result of sin? So as a result of anybody, raise your hand. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. That's nowhere in Scripture. God creates creation, has everything the way he exactly wants it in paradise. And God himself, which we'll see, works. And he puts a man to work. And God goes, oh, that's good. That's good. What do we see about work and vocation? Three things. One, all forms of work has intrinsic value. 
all forms of work. It's intrinsic value. We're going to start kind of on a 30,000 foot perspective, okay, guys? And then we're going to drill down because towards the end, I'm going to get very personal, very pointed, ask some very specific questions regardless of what you and I do for work. The Genesis account is radical. Do you realize how radical this account is? You and I are so familiar with it. We read it, we just went past. It is so radical because it was completely countercultural to the two predominant philosophies, worldviews at the time. The Near Eastern view of work was this. Gods never worked. Human beings work so that gods don't. So what do gods do? They play. They do stuff that gods do. Human beings work. That was the Near Eastern view. Then there was the Greek-Roman view. What was their view of work? Their view of work could best be symbolized by the mythology of the Pandora's box. Pandora opens the box with a jar, if you really read it, and out comes all the evil that's unleashed unto the world, like disease, sickness, and what? Work. So you have the Western view that said work is part of the curse, the evil that's unleashed in humanity. The Near Eastern view that says gods don't work, human And you have the biblical account. Listen, because we have been infected by this. The biblical account almost going out of its way in someone's face to go, God works. And he says it's good. Actually, it's even more radical than that. Some of you hear this every single Easter Sunday. The Greek and Romans believed that the spiritual world, the world of soul and spirit was good. And the material world, the physical world was evil and was bad. So the whole goal of life was for the spirit to be set free from the material world. In that mentality, they believed that dirt or soil and coming in contact with it was bad, demeaning. Socrates once famously said, don't work. And if you really have to work, become a philosopher or a teacher. Listen up here. Then you have the Genesis account of God with his hands in ditches. You have the creator God of the universe with dirt under his fingernails. You have God of all creation. This is my imagination. Wiping his sweat off the brow with a towel and going, what good hard days were. The Apostle Paul picks up on this. Do you know what's found throughout the New Testament in his epistles? He goes directly against the culture. Once, one time he wrote this to the church in Thessalonica. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. I love that, by the way. <laughs> Do you know that was in the Bible? <sighs> mind your own business. Okay, to mind your own business. And he says what? Read it with me. It says what? To work with your hands just as we told you. Paul goes out of his way to say to people that are growing up in the Roman Greek culture, work with your hands. Yeah, I know your culture has told you that work is demeaning. And furthermore, manual labor is really demeaning. But God, you have created God with his hands in dirt planting a garden. Think about the trajectory of what Scripture says about major points. Creation, you have what? God with his hands in dirt. Incarnation, you have God who takes on a human body for crying out loud. Radical to Greek Roman thought. In redemption, you have God redeeming the rest of the world. And in consummation, you have God building a new city. Every single point in biblical trajectory of redemption, you have God with his hands in dirt. Can I ask you a question? Have you bought into what our culture's lie says? Do you know how socially healing this would be? The reason why I preach on this, and I should preach on it more often, is do you realize we can't be the alternate community that God calls us to be and be a witness to the world if you and I buy into the world system? Do you know why? Because if you buy into the world system, you will think you're better than somebody because of what you do. You will think you're better than somebody because of how much money you make. You would think you're better than somebody. It may not be outright, but internally, if you do not recognize, Scripture says that all forms of work has intrinsic value because we have created God with his hands in dirt. Do you know how socially healing it would be? Can you imagine the city of Chicago 
where we didn't put hierarchy according to what people did for a living and how much they made. And we all looked at each other and said, we're made in the image of God and we all have dignity and value in our work. Can you imagine how socially healing that would be? Anybody here clean the streets for a living? Anybody here do manual labor? Um, do you know we have folks in our church who do that for a living? Any parents here with their hands in poop all day? And your world, our culture has told you, you are not important because of what you do is not important. Remember the God with his hands in dirt. Are you a young professional who makes a lot of money and the doorman in your condo doesn't even know you because you act like he doesn't even exist? Let me ask you a question. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ bleached that kind of superior mentality out of you? All work has intrinsic value because we have God with his hands in dirt. Secondly, all forms of work are participation in God's work. All forms of work are participation. Oh, this, this to me, I don't know, in the time that we have today, because I'm going to let it end a little early, I'm going to try. It's, it's, uh, it, it takes four weeks to unpack. It's what's called the cultural mandate. You find God saying, I want you to work the garden, and I want you to take care of it. I want you to work the garden, and I want you to take care of it. Foundational to understanding Genesis or humanity, for example, realizing that you and I are all made in the likeness image of God who is a creator. And that means that we have imprinted his DNA. That's why we have this need, inherent need to create stuff. Those of you that are parents, you see this early on. I'm amazed. I'm still amazed. I'm still, nobody teaches. I don't teach my children. Parker, when he was two, we threw him a brick of Legos. And he sat there for hours and hours and hours creating, making. He said, where does that come from? Where does this need to create come from? The Old Testament uses three words to describe the act of God creating. They are these words, asa, bara, and yatsar. Sometimes these words in Hebrew are used to, to describe God's act of creating things out of nothing. Like in Genesis 1, you see, ex nihilo, God creates something out of nothing. And then there are all these other derivative words, we don't have time today, that talk about not just the act of God creating, but us who are made in the image of God also creating. J.R. Tolkien used the word subcreation to describe what it is that we human beings made in the likeness image of God do. If God creates something out of nothing, we are called and made to sub-create. That's make something out of existing material. Make something out of something that's undeveloped. It's actually what the Holy Spirit's doing in Genesis 1. Look at this. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering. I wish I had more time to unpack these words in Hebrew. In the beginning, the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness hovered, which means there was chaos. There's disorder. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit comes, and he brings order out of chaos. He brings newness out of existing, undeveloped material. And you and I, sitting right now today, whether you know it or not, have this innate need to do that. We have this innate need to do that through our work to take something. Let me just give you some examples. I wish I can go through 20 different jobs, but give you some What's music? Music is taking the raw material of sound, putting it together to give us music that lifts us. What do actors and writers do? They take the raw material of experience and they create stories that teach us meaning, that give us purpose. Easy examples, sculptors, artists. But then it gets a little bit more tricky. What do teachers do? What do teachers do? What do good teachers do? You take that child and you go, there is so much potential here that can be developed. 
Good teachers will take a child. Good teachers, that's what you do. I'm not just talking about people who teach in schools. I'm talking about parents. I'm talking about anybody that works with youth. You look at that youth. You look at that student and you go, there is so much potential as a good teacher. You give them a vision for who they are and what they can be. And you tap into the God-given potential that they have. And you're bringing newness out of undeveloped material. Is there something, to, is there something worth giving your life for? I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. That's what teachers and parents are good people. That's what we're going to pray for at the end of the day. We're not just asking to go collect a paycheck. We're asking you, why do you have the need to do that? Because God put that in your DNA for crying out loud. Let's keep going. What are some other ways that we image this DNA of God? And again, I'm sorry, I can't cover all vocations. So you're going to have to use your brain to see is, is what I do. Medical professionals, what do you do? What do you do? You're doing what God created and put his DNA in you to do. You take a disordered body, a body that's in chaos, a body that's sick. And through the training and giftings God has given you, you bring an order out of it. Counselors, what do you do? You take a disordered life. A disorder life because of addiction, because of family history. And through teaching wisdom, through guidance and direction, you're bringing order out of that disorder life. Should I keep going? A couple more examples. What do venture capitalists do? There are many of you that are in the world of business. You take the raw idea of, raw material of ideas and you create new enterprise that adds value to human life. All of these are ways of doing what it is that the Spirit is doing, what God put DNA in us to do. Do you know? Do you know what it is that God has called you to do in your work to image the likeness of God to bring an order out of chaos, of newness, out of undeveloped material? This is the reason why unemployment is so devastating to the human soul. For the last several years, I've read research, and I've even on old church, unemployment is devastating to a person. So not just because of the stress of financially not being able to provide, because deep within us, there is a sense in which we feel suffocated if we are not using our God-given talents and calling to make a difference. Can I push this a little further? I just finished a 10, 12-week small group talking circles where we read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. As I read this, I realized, this might seem like a stretch to some of you, I realized that unemployment and having millions of people in our country who are stuck in systems of unemployment is an issue of justice because it goes to the very fiber of how we are created in the image of God. Man, I wish, as I read this, I was just like, oh, I wish we could just whip up answers to solve the issue of unemployment. And then I realized, and then I realized, and then I realized, do you know where it needs to begin? This needs to begin with you and me asking the question, is what I am doing, what you are doing right now, living into God's cultural mandate to image his likeness in you to bring order out of chaos? And then furthermore, if you are in positions of power authority, if you are in positions of power and authority where you could help another person create the image of God to do that, you need to do it. You need to do it. The second part, though, of this creating the image of God is not just that all forms of work, it's participation in God's work, but all forms of work are ways of loving others. It's the work it, and then the take care of it part. God says take care of it. I want to just show you a couple of passages that's found throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 65, 9. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. This is talking about God. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. For so you have ordained it. Unless you want to write this off just as some poetic flourishes. The psalmists and wisdom literature is constantly saying God not only creates, but he sustains. He maintains. He feeds, he cares for his creation. Who provides the people with grain? It says God does. The Bible says over and over again, it's God who meets the needs of every living thing. Psalm 145, 13, the Lord is faithful and he is loving towards you, all he has made. The eyes of all look to you, God, and you give them their food. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. 
God says, I am loving towards all creation. I care for my creation. How? I know it's hot in here, church. Hang with me. How does God care for his creation? Through Through us. Now, you might just go, okay, good theological insight. If God wanted to, he could do this himself. Thank you very much. There was one time in the Old Testament where God said, I'm going to send manna to feed and care for my Do you remember that? So I take this a little bit differently, and that is this. God could, in his infinite wisdom and power, do this on his own. And yet, God says, here's how I'm going to display my love towards my creation. I choose in my infinite wisdom to use you and me to care for his creation. Does that mean anything to anybody? Okay. <laughs> I know that half of you are like, I hate what I do. I'll get to that a little bit later. God says, I care for all the creation. I don't have to use you. I don't have to use you, but I choose to do it. Martin Luther King, thank you, Martin Luther King. Sorry, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. I'm quoting all kinds of people today. Martin Luther, you know, the Reformation guy, the German dude, not the African-American, the German dude, who, by the way, led this charge of ridding the church of secular versus spiritual divide. He said this. He said, when the farm girl milks the cow to give you milk, I love the imagery, that's God milking the cow. He doesn't have to use her, but he does. When the farmer grows it, and the transport transports it, and the baker bakes it, and the grocer sells it, that's God's way of giving you and me our daily bread. He said this quote, which I love. It's written, the baker and the farmer in disguise is God at work. These are the masks of God through which God is loving you. I'll never forget this years back, hanging out with the pastor friend of mine who was a mentor. We were at a restaurant. We were praying. <laughs> And this was his prayer. He said, God, I thank you for this daily bread. I thank you for the cook that prepared this meal. I thank you for the waitress that brought us the meal and cared for us so well. And I thank you for the rest of the crew that will clean it after we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. My first thought was, that's a dumb prayer. And then I realized. How profound his prayer was. How profound his prayer was in recognizing that every single point along the way, God saying, I give you your daily bread. I give you your daily bread. I give. Have you ever been sick? Do you know someone who you love that's sick? God heals supernaturally, miraculously. Sometimes he intervenes. But 99.9999999999% of the time in my life, God has used amazing doctors, nurses, and people in the medical profession. God teaches through teachers. Listen. God parents through parents. Do you have that deep sense in your heart that you, our channel of God's love and the way he loves his creation. Be honest this morning. Or is it just a job, paycheck, check in and check out. It's what I do for a living. No. Do you have, I'm telling you when, you, when I got this, when I got this, it made me tremble and shudder because every encounter that I have, every encounter is an opportunity for God in disguise. To love his creation. One minute or two minutes on this practical thing, and then I need to move on. How many of you don't know what you want to do for a living? Raise your hands. Okay. Raise your hand high. 
Now, the sad thing is some of you are already here. Okay, how many of you are in between jobs? Okay, how many of you hate what you do for a living? Okay, just put your hand down. Okay. If you are somebody that's asking the question, what do I do for a living? Can I just, can I just give me like a minute on this? If you come to me and ask me for advice, I will tell you, don't ask the question, what am I good at? That's how I'm going to find out, Pastor Peter. What am I good at? Do you know why? You're 26 years old. You don't know what you're good at. Say it again, Kimmy. And in case you're going, that offends me. I am 26. I know exactly what I'm good at. If it makes you feel any better, I'm 45. I still don't know what I'm good at, okay? Here's... Is that why you still, okay, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to move on. It's hot in here. Here's why I say that. Here's why I say that. I'm 45. The only way for you to know what it is that you're good at is for you to have tried just about everything under the sun. You're 26, you're 26 years old. How could you possibly know what you're good at when you haven't had the life experience to having tried a number of things? To me, it's not just wrong-headed. It's theologically wrong to ask the question, what am I good at? The question the Bible forces you and me to ask is, what does the human community need for its flourishing that God may have deposited some gifts in me to do? That's the question. In a world in which people completely avoid the question of what the Bible says, there has never been a generation more unhappy with the choices that made because they were good at it and they felt like they had passion for it. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe the question you and I need to ask is, what does the human community need to lead to flourishing that I may have some gifts to contribute to? Church, are you hearing me? Okay. Are you hearing me? Ask that question. See, this is what, it's tragic. Some of you will pass up jobs that are amazing and will lead to deep fulfillment in your soul. Why? Because to you, it doesn't pay enough money. Some of you will leave jobs you currently have, even though it does ton of good to the human community around you. Yes, it's hard, but ton of human community because it doesn't give you the lifestyle it affords. Some of you, and this will be tragic, We'll pass up job after job and wait for that perfect job, thinking that if I could just get, when there are all kinds of needs around you that could lead to human flourishing. <laughs> Pastor Michael, Pastor Cameron, nobody's going to come up and ask me for advice about their future from this point on. <laughs> Moving on, all forms of work is unto the Lord. All forms of work is unto the Lord. I need you to read this with me. Colossians 3.23. Here we go. Ready? Go. What? So here we go. Ready? Go. Whatever. Stop. Let's read that again. Whatever you. Stop. Whatever you do. But it's not what I want to do. Not the issue. But I just kind of sort of fell into it. Say it with me. Not the issue. But you know, I'm just doing it to, you know, put food on the table. Say it with me. Not the issue. But I hate what I do. Meh. Not the issue. Sorry, I don't mean to. I, I'm not trying to be mean. Not. Say it with me. Not the issue. Whatever. Does that include everybody here? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. No, God, you don't mean that. Not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Paul just comes right out and he relativizes all human bosses and all human jobs. He literally coming on going, 
You think you work for the market segment? He says what? You're working for who? You're working for the Lord. Nate, does this resonate with you? You think you work, oh, you think you work for your supervisor that you just can't stand? God says, you don't work for him. You work for who? You work for the Lord. Oh, you think you work for that boss who's, make, who's making your life miserable Monday through Friday. And I'm not making light of this, but God says, you are not working for the market segment. You are not working for your supervisor. You are not working for your human boss. You are working for who? For the Lord. And God says, I care just as much about your work life as your sex life, your financial life, or your spiritual life. Because God says, I don't compartmentalize life. All of it falls under my lordship. And every single one of us will give an account one day of what we did at work. See, Paul is saying this. Is your perspective thinking about that boss you might not even have three years from now? Or are you thinking about that boss that you will have three million years from now? Come on. Come on now. Come on now. Some of us need a radical revolution because we can't get it out of our minds. I work for him, him, her, her, her. And God goes, look higher. You work for me. Jesus one time said, if you can't be faithful with little, how can I entrust you with much? Do you know what he was literally saying about jobs? How could I possibly give you the job that you were created for when you can't even be trustworthy in the job that you have now? How, why would Jesus... Take some of us who go, I, I know there's a job I was created for, passionate about. It will fulfill every part of my being. God's going, you can't even be faithful in the place I've placed you. Why would God do that? Because he's a mean God. No, it's because he loves you. And he recognizes that to whom much is entrusted, what? Much will be expected. Some of us are consumed with finding something to do. That really matters. And God goes, what really matters is that you do your job right now as if you were working for me. Can I get an amen? Amen. I know this is hard truth because it flies 100% in the face of what our culture tells you. But God says, whatever you do right now, you're working for me. You're working for me. Can I just say one more thing and then I'll move on? Uh, How well you perform at work is just as important, if not more, than how well you behave at work. You ever been around Christians who are like, I'm going to be a person of highest integrity and character. I'm going to treat everybody with kindness. And they're lazy, they slack off, and other workers, non-Christians, put them to shame. God says, great character never makes up for poor workmanship for a kingdom person. Kingdom people, you and I, Do you realize if we follow Jesus, we ought to be the best workers in our companies, in our workplaces? Do you know that? Do do you realize that? People don't care. People honestly don't care about your prayer. They kind of do. But that prayer life, how often you read the Bible, if you show up to work and 90% of people in your company put you to shame in terms of their productivity and hardworking. What kind of example? Okay, I'm almost done. What would it be like if today... I'm Tuesday. What would it be like if on Tuesday you went to work and you don't have to worry about Peter for the rest of my life, just Tuesday? What would it look like if you decided I'm going to work with all my heart, not for the guy who signs my check, not for the lady who determines my bonus? I work for Jesus. What would be different? What would have to change? What would have to change about you, about me? If we showed up to work on Tuesday and we said, I don't work for any of these people, I work for him. What would look different just for one day? Lastly. Observe the Sabbath. 
good, Lord. I just want to highlight something. Keeping the Sabbath is right next to the commandments. Keeping the is right next to the commandments to not murder, to not commit adultery, and to not steal. I just want to highlight that. Because we go, murder, <gasps> adultery, <gasps> lying, <gasps> Sabbath, who cares? Do you know why this is so important? CC, where are you? Oh, CC not here? I'm just going to have to finish without him. Come on now, CC. You find this refrain throughout the Genesis account, right, Brian? So God creates something and God goes, it's good. God creates another thing and he goes, it's good. And at the very end, God looks at everything he created. He goes, oh, it's good. Done, finished. And then he rested. What does it mean that God rested? Can't mean that God gets tired. He's God for crying out loud. He doesn't get tired. What does it mean that God rested? Author of Hebrews in chapter 4 says this. There remains on a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who renters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Do you know what it means to rest? What God did? Everybody look up here if you can. Here's what it means to rest. It means to work, 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 whatever you do, and be so satisfied and content with what's been done that you walk away from it goes, I don't need to do anymore. I'm good. Not one single one of us sitting in this room could do that. That's why we can't rest. Do you know why we can't walk away from our work and go, nothing more needs to be done? Because it's not just work up here. This is what you do for a living. The Bible says there's work underneath the work. And it's this work and your inability to stop from this, that's why you can't rest. What do I mean? Your work is not just work. My work is not just work. What is it? It's our identity. It's our significance. It's what gives us a name. That's why you can never walk away. Because your work isn't just about what you do Monday to Friday. Your work is about identity. Why can't you rest? Because you're finding significance in what you do. Why can't you rest? Because unless you accomplish something, your culture is bullying you to that to believe, I am not worth anything. Work is not just work up here. It's work underneath here that says, unless you find your identity significance, you will never. And that's why none of us could never go, I'm done, walk away. Because that work underneath the work is never done. How are you going to stop? John, how are you going to stop? Why do you think I point to the gospel, the cross every single Sunday? Do you think it's just, well, it centers us in everything you do because unless that is the acceptance that you're longing for, you will never rest. Unless that is the significance you're longing for, you will never rest. Unless that is what gives you worth and value, you will never rest. Never rest. You will be at home. You will be at church on Sunday for crying out loud going, oh, I got so much work to do. It's not just about work. It's your identity, significance, and worth. And that work is never done. Has the gospel penetrated your heart? Can you look at your work and go, thank you for giving me this work, creating me to make a contribution in the likeness of God. But Lord, You're my identity, you're my significance, you're my worth, and I'm done, and I can walk away. Can you do that otherwise? They're not tied to our sermon series. How do you have community when you can't even rest from your work? How can you be around on Sundays and serve and contribute to this body if you can't wait to get the heck out of here so you can have lunch with your friends and go back to work? Community, living the Christian life, is impossible until you learn Sabbath rest. Here's what we're going to (sighs) do. I'm sorry. I just. (sighs) 
kids are here. And all the volunteers for children's ministry are here. They're going to come up with all their teachers and volunteers. Listen very carefully for how we're going to do the next five minutes as we end the service. You and I as a church body are commissioning these teachers because they have been entrusted with God's divine mandate to make and to care for God's prized creation. To see a vision for these teachers of who they can be. These states, who they can be. And we're going to just commission them and pray for them. And then afterwards, you and I have some business to do where I'm going to ask all of you to stand. And there's a prayer that I'd like us to pray as we covenant and we commission all of you to your workplaces. So all the kids and parents and teachers, come on up. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up. Yep, volunteers, absolutely. <laughs> Come on up. <sighs> there was actually probably more kids than this. It's holiday weekend. A lot of parents or families are gone. So we're going to have to catch some of our other folks another time. Guys, go ahead and move. Swing, 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 swing. <sighs> swing, 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 swing. Hi, hi, hi. Church, church, come on. Hey. You know, you know, your pastor tends to be repetitive, so bear with me. There is no secular spiritual divide. And this is the imagery of that. What we do now to commission these men and women and these teachers in praying for them is no less or more important than what we do for you as we commission you to your companies and to your jobs. I think it's perfectly appropriate for stuff like this for you to stand. Church, where you are, go ahead, stand. Come on now. And I'd love for you to extend your hand out like this to all the teachers, all the volunteers, all the parents who have been entrusted with this kingdom mission. To teach and instill. These beautiful children in the ways of Jesus. Pastor Caitlin will now pray for us and will commission us. Father, I thank you for every child and parent and person on stage right now. We pray that you would be in, working in and through their gifts and talents to serve the children, Lord. We pray that there would be excitement building in the classrooms. Um, pray that you would specifically commission them and speak to their hearts right now. Yes. That you would really be working through them and that you're touching the hearts of your children. Yes. Through them and through their time here, yes. Lord. That your presence would be felt in each and every lesson yes. and every game and every hug and kiss that this ministry would flourish under yes. your guidance, Lord, yes. and that these volunteers are why and how it's happening, that you would urge them in different ways to serve in their classrooms through their gifting, and that you would be calling that out during this year. Um, I thank you for everything you've put in them and yes. you, that you'd continue to encourage them, Lord. Yes. Continue your power, continue your release of your love through this ministry. We thank you, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. For those of you out there, some of you might just keep your hand up as an act of surrender. Here's a commissioning prayer. 
commissioning covenant. I will read the leader part. You read and respond with everyone. As those who have committed to following Christ's call on your lives, will you allow the expression of your personality and the exercise of your spiritual gifts and your natural talents to be directed and empowered for the glory of Jesus Christ as Lord? Will you obey the command of the cultural mandate of dominion over the earth to work it and care for it, fulfilling your image-bearing ability to create from that which was created for God's glory? Will you be used by God to transform your vocation so that it reflects God's kingdom values in its service to humanity and its role of cultivating the world's resources? Will you encourage one another towards seeing your work as more than a job or a paycheck, but as the very means by which God is redeeming the world through his people? And will, you, will you always give yourselves fully to your work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain? With God is our help. Will you work six days and take a Sabbath day rest, trusting in God's provision and viewing work as part of the rhythm of a holistic life of worship with no secular sacred dichotomy? With God's help. And lastly, in whatever you do, will you work at it with all your heart? Because you are actually working for the Lord, not just for human leaders. With God as our help, we will. All the kids and children and volunteers, if you guys go join your parents, remain standing church as I pray for our tithes and our offering. Father, we thank you. And we praise you. We are your church. We are the people of God, the body of Christ. Use our hands. Use our feet. Use the talents, gifts, and resources that you have entrusted and deposited to our care. And God, now we give back to you what rightfully belongs to you in the first place. Thank you for your generosity. Your generosity towards us in the sending of your son in your work of redemption, of crucifixion and resurrection. Thank you for the breath of life. Thank you for the ways in which we get to participate in being channels of your love. And as we give our resources back to you, it is our prayer that you would use this to further your work of restoring, of redeeming, of healing, and of saving your creation we thank you we pray this in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit